The popcorn you're eating has been pissed in. Film at 11. Welcome to the Paris Cinema Podcast, where we discuss cult films, genre films, experimental and arthouse movies, and anything else that has flown under the radar of mainstream moviegoers. Okay, this week was my pick, and I decided to go with a classic comedy this week, just because last time we did Twin Peaks, and that was like two weeks of studying, and my brain melted, and so I just didn't want to have to think so hard this time. So I chose a 1977 film directed by John Landis, and this is the Kentucky Fried Movie. The reason I decided on this is I know both of us, Adam, over the years have been really big fans of Airplane and the Naked Gun movies, and this is kind of where that all started. And if we talk about Airplane or Naked Gun, it doesn't exactly fit into the realm of this podcast because those were massive hits, both critically and commercially. And Kentucky Fried Movie is sort of the cult classic that got all of these guys there. And so you've got this director in John Landis, who we all know now who was a director of a lot of great 80s movies. He directed uh, Animal House, The Blues Brothers, American Werewolf in London, Trading Places, Three Amigos, Coming to America. Um, He did another sketch comedy film uh, called Amazon Women on the Moon, which was not as good as this one, but that came in the late 80s. And so all of that kind of sprang out of this movie. This was his second film. Uh, He directed another comedy film in 1973 called Schlock that I don't think anyone has seen, but this is the movie that kind of launched his career. And the film was written by Jim Abraham, David Zucker, and Jerry Zucker. And again, these are the guys who went on to a lot of fame, not only writing, but they ended up directing the movies like Naked on an Airplane and many, many movies after this. But this was their first um writing credit for a movie. And so, again, I thought this was important for us to talk about because this is where where it all started for them. I think John Landis, didn't he also direct the Thriller music video? He did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good piece of trivia. Yeah. And I think that uh, Michael Jackson actually stated that this was one of only two films that he had actually seen before hiring Landis. He had seen Kentucky Fried Movie and... American Werewolf in London. And those are the two movies that got him the gig. So yeah, great, great piece of trivia there. Uh, so again, this this movie was released in August 1977. And there weren't really a lot of stars in this. This was a low budget film. So you see some credits for guys like Bill Bixby and Donald Sutherland, but they've got very small roles in this movie. I think Donald Sutherland shows up for like a total of 10 seconds on screen, but they were able to bill him on the poster as, you know, Donald Sutherland is in this film. So it it was a little bit more popular because of having a couple of these names, but in no, in no way, shape or form were there big name actors in this movie. Yeah, definitely not. Never heard of any of these people actually except Donald Sutherland. I mean, as far as the actors, that was it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, this is a sketch comedy movie that's 
you know, it's, it's best moments are things like the fake commercials and the fake movie trailers, at least in my opinion. So really doesn't matter like who the actors are. It's just, it, it works for, for, for what they're trying to achieve here. So, okay. So there's not really a whole lot of, uh, other things we need to talk about with the credits here. Do you want to tell us what this movie is? Well, it's kind of like, uh, 70s version of like Saturday Night Live or or the Naked Gun basically uh I mean it it has a feel just like Airplane so you know a bunch of uh jokes that cultural references that probably don't make any sense now but at the time they must have been super funny however Airplane still today is super funny but I I had actually not heard of this movie at all until about I'd say six months ago when it showed up on Amazon Prime and I had just never, it was kind of like Xanadu. I always wanted to know what it was about, but I never wanted to rent it. So you saw the box of the, on the blockbuster shelf with the weird poster with just kind of an amalgam of like the Statue of Liberty and a shoe and a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't make any sense or explain anything about what it was about. So I turned it on one day on Amazon and surprisingly it was it was funny immediately from the beginning yeah and essentially you know this is this is different probably from any kind of movie that came before it because it's doesn't really have the traditional structure of a movie you know it's just like you said it's it's kind of like saturday night live but not really because it's all you know saturday night live is kind of a stage performance that's broadcast on live tv or this is all it's, it's all like a combination of things like fake TV commercials, like drug commercials and oil commercials and um, fake news reports. There's some fake movie trailers and it's all kind of sandwiched with this short film in the middle of it, which is a fistful of yen. It's like a 30 minute sort of parody film that's you know, based on Enter the Dragon. And so it's like this spoof on Enter the Dragon in the middle of the film. And so you've got about 25 or 30 minutes of this like sketch comedy before that. And then you've got this this movie in the middle. And then it's got like another 20 or so minutes of sketch comedy stuff after that. And so I don't know how many sketches there are. There's probably about 15 or so. And it's just kind of a random hodgepodge of things. And yeah, I don't think that there was a movie before this that had this kind of structure to it. And really, we haven't seen a lot of movies after this. Can you think of any other ones? As I mentioned, there was uh, Amazon Women on the Moon and I think Movie 43. But can you think of any other movies that were like this? The only other one I can think of is The Onion Movie. Oh, yeah. That's it. That was a good one. Yeah, that came out about 10 years ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so. And it's just it's just kind of interesting because some of the stuff is really funny. At least for me, some of it doesn't really work. And so you just kind of have to watch it and, and go through it and see some of these things. But they range anywhere from about four seconds to some of these <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, news bulletins to, you know, like I said, 30 minutes. So there's this wide range of like how long these things actually last, but you see the stuff like the, like the head, like the headache medicine commercials that are 30 seconds long. They're like exactly what you would expect from like a normal commercial on TV. (laughs) So, so 
real quick, when it comes to spoof movies like this, uh, I'd say probably in the last 15 years, maybe, there hasn't been a good one. It kind of seems like this might have been the first one that I know of that was funny. And then most of them were funny after that, up until uh, things started to go downhill with uh, maybe some of the scary movies or definitely the ones called epic movie, disaster movie. You know, those were terrible. That's like 0% Rotten Tomatoes score. So I was, I was kind of surprised that this one was actually funny, considering it was probably the first time anybody had seen anything like this. But since the airplane people were involved, I guess it's not that big of a surprise because just about everything they do or wrote yeah. was funny. Yeah, and I mean, if we look at the context of the 1970s, really the the only other thing that you've got going on that's similar to this style in terms of like, you know, your spoof slash parody movies is the the Mel Brooks stuff. You know, you've got Blazing Saddles, you've got Young Frankenstein in this same era. And I think that, that the reason why these movies worked when they did is because of how edgy they were. You know, you and I uh, were just discussing this, you know, before this recording, how in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of these like really kind of edgy movies came into Hollywood and challenged the mainstream and changed just kind of the rules. And Mel Brooks, in, in, in my opinion, was the guy who really came out strong with Blazing Saddles and had this kind of like in-your-face comedy that a lot of people weren't really ready for. And this is sort of an evolution of that, but it's... I don't think that this is, in terms of the movies that David Zucker, Jerry Zucker, and Jim a Abraham wrote, I don't think that this is their best work, but it's certainly important because of how it launched their careers. And getting back to what you were saying about how there really hasn't been a good spoof movie in a long time, I think that there's just, I think that it was just the timing of it. You know, the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of these movies and a lot of them were really good. And once we got into the 90s, it kind of fell off. I think people just got tired of it and the the jokes didn't land. And I don't know. It's just a, a lot of what makes these movies work, I feel, is the cultural and like uh, pop culture references. And the thing that makes them work is also the things that sort of ages them. Yeah. You know, you can <laughs> kind of look back at this movie and like you were saying at the beginning, a lot of these things just don't make sense anymore like for example like the jokes about how like detroit is like the most like apocalyptic city on the planet like that's the worst place that you can be and that's kind of like a running gag throughout this movie that they reference detroit as being this terrible place and it's just like you know in 2023 we look back on that and we're like well i don't really get it you know because i wasn't there in detroit in 1977 so there's things like that that just you know, are a product of their time. But at the same time, uh, I think that's also why sketch comedy like Saturday Night Live works. But again, like you're not going to go back necessarily and watch old Saturday Night Live uh, episodes either. They aren't always going to they aren't always going to make sense. Yeah. Well, also, uh, a lot of the spoof movies that have come out in the last 20 years are, are mostly 
consist of people like hitting their heads on stuff, which isn't really that funny. I mean, I, I don't think it is. Or, or people falling down. I mean, at some point they, they stopped thinking of, I guess, smarter comedy and just made mm -hmm. it stupid. Yeah. And what you're talking about is physical comedy, which can be hilarious, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very particular skill. You know, there's not a lot of actors that can do physical comedy. You know, if you look at, you know, why the Naked Gun movies were so, so good, it was because Leslie Nielsen was a genius when it came to physical comedy. And the same could be said of guys like Chevy Chase or even going back to the silent era where you have people like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. You know, these these uh, these actors had a very particular set of skills and not everyone is going to be able to just fall on their ass and make it funny. You know, it's just you have to have that kind of talent in order to pull off a joke yeah. like that. Yeah. And Leslie Nielsen was maybe the last one to be mostly successful at doing that. I mean, he he, he wasn't really doing that in uh, Airplane or even The Police Squad, which is the show that came before the Naked Gun movies. He, he eventually became more based in physical comedy and, and uh, he was always good at it even even towards the end of his uh career which was uh, I, th I think the last time i saw him was in scary movie three i think uh the one with charlie sheen um he, he was still pretty funny in that uh but but <laughs> there's been a lot of really bad ones where almost the entire movie is people hitting their heads on stuff and it's, mm -hmm. I don't know, I, mm -hmm. I just don't okay. think it's funny. Yeah, and a lot of what made Leslie Nielsen funny too, you know, besides the 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 physical comedy of him just doing crazy things, was he could, he could make you laugh with just like a look on his face. You know, just the way that he would open his eyes or look at something or just be silent about something, you know, and he did that a lot in The Naked Gun, the, uh, the first one, and he also did it a lot in Airplane, where he just like, just the way that he would respond, like with his body, you know, to certain, certain things around him. And that's what the, that's what these movies are kind of about is just like people doing and saying absurd things and other people reacting to it kind of like it's totally normal, you know? And I think that that's one of the things that, Kentucky Fried movie sort of invented. And I think that there's a, you know, we can go through some of some of our favorite uh, segments, but just to just to touch on what I'm talking about, you know, there's the courtroom scene where a lot of those kind of jokes go down where people just say like really weird stuff and other people just like kind of go on like it's just absolutely normal. And I never really seen comedy like that before this movie yeah me either um and it, actually the courtroom scene the, the guy that that was typing uh in the courtroom is the same person that is typing in the courtroom i think in the the next two airplane movies and some of the jokes i i think were even used again in those movies but you're right that uh the, these people exist in this world where they they don't react as though there's something funny going on like it's they react like it's normal to them and that's what what makes it funny and also uh uh it does take a certain kind of actor to uh give a look in response to 
these absurd things in order for it to be funny. Let's talk about let's talk about the segments. Um, first of all, did you have one that was just your absolute favorite that stood out to you? I did like the courtroom scene. I thought it was uh, it, it it reminded me of Airplane, and I really liked the two Airplane movies, so that was funny. But also, uh, but there's a there's a segment called the Wonderful World of Sex. Where it's just like these, there's like a narrator explaining to these two people how to get it on, basically. And the, they're listening to a record. Oh, yeah, that's right. They're listening to a record. That's right. And the, the record has the instructions and uh, everything seems to be going pretty normal. And then just at the last minute, a guy named uh, Big Jim Slade busts through the wall and he's just like this big, muscly black guy. And he takes the the woman away from out of the bed and just runs away. I mean, it was it, I was not expecting that. It's super random, and and the it's those random things like that that I always find funny, and just just like people getting hit with arrows for no reason, which apparently has something to do with them being a uh, a Virgo, I think. Yeah. So so if somebody <laughs> mentions you're a Virgo, and they're like, and by the way, I'm a Virgo, and and they'll just be hit with an arrow and die, and that's it. It's so random. And yeah, how about you? The the wonderful world of sex was great. So you kind of have to like the first time you watch it, it's kind of like hard to like see what's happening on screen and listen to that, you know, like you said, the voiceover because it's two people having sex. And so like immediately your eyes are drawn to these people. And then when you actually hear what they're listening to, what they're talking about is essentially the the record goes on to say something along the lines of like if you have premature ejaculation don't worry this record comes with big jim slade <laughs> yeah. and so so the guy has this look on his face like oh shit i just came too early and then that's when big jim slade busts through the wall and he's like give me that woman and takes her away and 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 finishes her off, so to speak. Yeah, he's basically the the buff Kool Aid man. No, that's exactly <laughs> what he looks like. Yeah, um, yeah, and he, apparently he plays for the the Kansas City Chiefs. So, one of the most frequent problems encountered during the sexual act is that of premature ejaculation. Should premature ejaculation occur? The Joy of Sex album comes equipped with Big Jim Slade. Big Jim, former tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, is outfitted with various whips, chains, and a sexual appetite that will knock your socks off. Big Jim has satisfied women throughout the world, and the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. Yeah, that was a funny one. Parody exploitation films are the ones that really kind of stand out to me I think are just hilarious and a couple of examples of those are the Catholic high school girls in trouble which is basically a sexploitation film and it's just a two minute trailer for a movie more offensive than Mandingo more shocking than behind the green door more erotic than Deep Throat. You will cream in your jeans when you see Catholic High School Girls in Trouble. Samuel L. Bronkowitz presents Linda Chambers recreating her classic role. 
And introducing Susan Joyce and Nancy Reeves. Susan, this is Nancy. Nancy, this is Susan. The screen has never dared to be so explicit. Show me your nuts. Oh, oh, oh. oh how you doing? Oh, 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 oh. Mrs. Burke, I, I thought you were Dale. You know, people often mistake me for my teenage daughter, Dale. Never before has the beauty of the sexual act been so crassly exploited. The bizarre story of what happens when high school girls are allowed to stay out after curfew. Finally, an adult motion picture has the courage to reveal the truth about masturbation. Brutal. Savage. Beyond perversion. You must see Catholic High School Girls in Trouble. There's that one, and then the other one is uh, Cleopatra Schwartz. Which is about this? It's basically a black exploitation parody uh, of this uh, just badass Pam Greer like chick who is married to like a Hasidic Jew. It's just ridiculous. She was six feet of black dynamite. He was a short Hasidic Jew. She fought a savage battle to stay alive in the ghetto. He studied the Talmud at night. While she burned the ghetto to the ground, he kindled the Sabbath candles. was a love of passion, a torrent sensual lust, fueled by those who said no. Samuel L. Bronkowitz presents Cleopatra Schwartz. They alone dared to triumph in a hellish inferno of unrelenting desire. Never before has the screen unleashed its violent fury. Never again will one man and one woman defy such incredible odds. Together, no one could stop them. And I think I think that segment might have been the. In, I have to look it up, but it might have been the inspiration for Black Dynamite because uh, at right in the beginning of that segment, they say that Black Dynamite. And uh, if anybody hasn't seen Black Dynamite, it's another one of these kind of spoof movies but th that one is also really funny so i'd recommend that one too but i wonder if that was this was the inspiration yeah, for that could be so i don't know what it is about these two segments they just make me laugh i mean there's a lot of them like that that are really funny i love all of the 11 o'clock news segments where they're just like five seconds long and the movie actually starts out with one and it's like moscow in flames missiles headed toward new york film at 11 yeah. <laughs> I think it actually ends with that same guy saying, uh, I'm not wearing any pants. Film at 11. Um, 
I don't know what it is about these guys who they they love the to parody the news. I mean, the last the last full segment, the eyewitness news one, is also one of my favorite. It's essentially this um, young couple in the living room, uh, and they're having sex on the couch, and the TV is on in the background, and there's just like this news broadcast. But then out of nowhere, the newscaster can actually see them fucking through the TV. And so he starts watching them have sex and then he kind of like like goads the the crew members of the news crew over to watch as well. And they're all like looking through the TV at these people and they're just acting like total perverts, like watching them. Uh, and it's just it's ridiculous. That's that's another one of the segments that just really really kind of stands <laughs> yeah. out. Yeah, most of them are pretty short. Now the the longest one in this is called A Fistful of Yen, which is appears to be a parody of Enter the Dragon, which now I've seen Enter the Dragon hundreds of times. I grew up watching that nonstop. Um I I know that you said you might not have liked it that much. Um I thought I thought it was pretty funny. I I I did think the guy who was clearly doing an impression of Bruce Lee, did a pretty good job of that. They did parody most of Enter the Dragon pretty well. And of course, uh, Big Jim Slade appears for no mm. reason in that as well. I mean, why wouldn't he? Exactly. <laughs> My problem with it isn't so much that I didn't like the segment itself. I, I did think it was pretty good. It's definitely funny. The the main issue with it is that it just really slows down the whole just flow of the film because you've got these like they're just firing off these segments one after the other and they're really just a couple minutes long. I think the longest ones before this are like the uh, the feel around where the guy goes into the movie theater and there's like this like 4D experience type of thing where there's like an usher behind him, like assaulting him during a, the film. And that's about five minutes long. And then there's another one that we already talked about, the the wonderful world of sex. That one's about five minutes long. But apart from those two, all the other segments are really short. And so you've got this just like really fast pace of the film. And then out of nowhere, it just kind of slows to a crawl for 30 minutes. And then it picks back up and you get these segments that are, again, it fires off these segments that are really short. The courtroom ones are, are probably the longest um, in the second half of the film. But that's really that's really my problem with it is just kind of like the, the, the pacing of the film just suffers because of where they put that. I don't know that there's really anything that you could do about that, you know, because if that wasn't there, then you'd have, you know, presumably another 30 minutes of these other types of sketches, which might actually be too much for this movie. Um, so on the one hand, it works, but 
it wasn't it wasn't my favorite thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it did. I was kind of wondering why it was so long when everything else was so short, and I was also wondering why they chose to spoof Enter the Dragon because now I, I don't know what the hottest movies at the time were. I know that Enter the Dragon came out earlier in uh, uh, 1973, and this came out. When was it? 77? Yeah. 77. 77. So I imagine Enter the Dragon probably wasn't the biggest, you know, the most talked about thing at the time. And I'm sure there's other more popular movies they could have chosen to spoof. So I don't know if one of them was just a fan of, of that or, or what. But yeah, definitely took up the most time in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know the, the history of Bruce Lee and all of his films as much as other people probably do. But what I will say is that Enter Enter the Dragon was his last film before he died. So that movie came out 1973. Then he dies in 1973. My guess is that Bruce Lee became more popular after his death because of just, you know, just the kind of the shock of it and the and this movie is all about parodies of pop culture. So if they're talking about it in this movie, it was probably a big deal in, in terms of like just the news or pop culture, all that stuff. You know, because, you know, Bruce Lee died when he was like 32 years old. So it was kind of a shocking thing that happened right as he was sort of rising in his career. So maybe it was just, you know, I don't know for sure exactly why they why they did choose that. But if I can just kind of just put some things together in terms of what was going on in the industry at that time, it kind of makes sense. But yeah, I mean, these, this sort of like Kung Fu movies really weren't popular after Bruce Lee's death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not until basically not until Jackie Chan brought it back. So, I mean, it was, the segment was fun. It was fun to watch. There was good action in it. You know, for the the budget of this film and considering what this movie is, the action was decent in terms of just watching the uh, the martial arts fights and whatnot. They were pretty silly, but um, it was fu- it was fun. It was a good segment, but again, it was just a little bit weird in terms of the pacing of the film. I, I thought it was. Uh, I didn't know this until I looked it up, but I thought it was interesting that uh, John Landis played the gorilla. Did you know that? I thought it was Rick Baker. No, it says. I, I, well, I found in the cast, it said, uh, John, John Landis, gorilla. And then I saw during the, uh, the feel around segment, there was a poster on the wall for that movie, Schlock, which has, has something to do with a gorilla mm-hmm. also. Yeah. Yeah. He had a grill in that movie. Um, I guess what I'm, what I was thinking about is so, so Rick Baker, the Academy Award winning, creature designer slash special effects artist he designed that gorilla suit and he used it to audition for the uh, king kong movie that uh, came out one year uh, prior to this so 1976 when that uh, that king kong movie came out he went on and had an illustrious career. I I think that he actually made the gorilla suits for Gorillas in the Mist as well, if I remember correctly. <laughs> well, he must be pretty good at that because I, I actually thought it was a really good gorilla suit in this movie. 
<laughs> I mean, that gorilla came in and fucked everyone up, that's for sure. Well, it didn't like having its uh, impotence being talked about. <laughs> no, no, not at all. He was not happy. But yeah, John Landis, from what I understand, was in the gorilla suit. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, he, uh, I think he was a good pick as a director for this movie. It's kind of interesting to see that he jumped from this to uh, doing something like An American Werewolf in London because that movie, well, it might have a few moments of comedy in it. It's definitely not a comedy at all. It's like a straight horror film. Um, So it's interesting to see that he had that flexibility. But like we mentioned in the beginning, he's done a lot of of comedies. He was like the, the king of 80s comedies. Really? What did he do in the 80s? Well, he did Animal House after this which was a 70s movie. He did The Blues Brothers. He did Trading Places. He did Three Amigos. He did Coming to America. You know, so Mm. he's got a... Spies Like Us. Yeah, those were all like legendary movies. Yeah, Yeah. so he's got a pretty... He's got a pretty good career of comedies that he did in the 80s. He's pretty successful. Yeah, he's like the king of 80s comedies. So, but when... The Zucker brothers and Jim Abraham left. They kind of just directed their own films going forward. You know, I think that uh, Jerry Zucker was sort of like the main director of a lot of their films. So he had directed Airplane, Top Secret, Ruthless People. And weirdly enough, he transitioned into more dramas. Like he directed Ghost and First (laughs) Night. Really? So I'm like super surprised at that. I had to look it up real quick. So so I can't believe Jerry Zucker directed Ghost. That's like, (laughs) that's one of my favorite movies of all time and has like zero comedy in it. Uh, Well, maybe a couple parts because of Whoopi Goldberg. But uh, that, no, that really surprises me that he did that. So yeah, the the guy who directed Airplane and Top Secret and The Naked Gun uh, well, actually, he did not direct The Naked Gun. The Naked Gun was directed by his brother, David Zucker. So they all wrote these films together, but they kind of, some of their early films, they co-directed. So, but uh, it's interesting because they didn't always get the, the credit for directors. So they kind of had to trade off like who actually got the director credit. So for example, like, Airplane, Top Secret, Ruthless People, um, The Naked Gun, Naked Gun Two and a Half. Those were all directed by uh, David Zucker and Jerry Zucker. But then they sort of like their careers kind of split up and they went into different directions. And and First Night, that wasn't a very good movie. It was just very dramatic, like retelling of like the Arthurian legend with Who's that? Sean Connery and Richard Gere were in that movie. I was a total piece of shit, but it was it was a fairly popular movie at the time. Um, and then you've got Jim Abrahams. So again, he was like co-director with some of these guys on the early films. So you had like all three of these guys directing Airplane, Top Secret, Ruthless People. But then again, they all sort of split up. Now, Abrahams went on and he did. He had a couple of spoof movies that did really well. He did the Hot Shots movies and, and he good. did Mafia. Mm-hmm. That was good too. So, so yeah, I mean, they all these guys had, had good careers essentially, but you can sort of tell that the the... 
the common thread here is that uh, really beyond the original scary movie, there wasn't really much in the way of like good spoof movies. Abrahams and Zucker were involved with some of the scary movies, but they just, I don't know, like how many scary movies do you really need? That's that's the question <laughs> and, that well, I and have. And those kind of spun off into other things too. And, and I don't know, I, I thought the scary movies, it was funny maybe for like the first two, possibly three, but then it just got kind of stupid. And then there was a haunted house after that, which was a spoof of paranormal activity. I, I didn't really think any of those were funny, actually. Uh, the, the one, the one that I did think was funny, uh, was, I mean, recently was, uh, 50 shades of black, which is, uh, a Wayans brothers movies. Now, now, now they kind of picked things up and made, kind of made this whole genre funny again with, uh, what was that one? I'm going to get you sucker. And then don't be a menace in, to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was really funny. Actually. Yeah, that was. A- yeah. And I, I think that that kind of like was the right era of like these spoof movies like that came out in the mid 90s. And I think that that's kind of what we're talking about is like the mid to late 90s. These kind of movies just sort of died off. And whoever has been trying to make these movies since then just really didn't get it. You know, I mean, even Mel Brooks didn't really make it out of the 90s. You know, he he had uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. And then he did that Dracula movie with with Leslie Nielsen, which I didn't really think was very good. And mm-hmm. that was like, no. And then I no, was like, OK, Mel Brooks <laughs> is done. But maybe it's just a, a product of its era, you know? Maybe. I mean, uh, the, the Wayans brothers, when they made uh, Don't Drink Your Juice, that, I mean, that was a it was a spoof of a collection of in the hood movies, you know? So they had a lot to, a lot of stuff to pick from. And plus, everybody had seen the movies they were spoofing, which was, uh, uh right. what was it? Boys yep. in the Hood. Do the Right Menace Thing. Menace to Society. Juice. Um, Friday. South Central. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and, and those were, yeah, they had a lot of things to pull from. Yeah, exactly. No, you're right. The early 90s. There was a ton of these movies and even going back to late 80s with stuff like Do the Right Thing and New Jack City. So you're right. I No, that's a good point, because if you don't have good material to start out with, then the 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 comedy or the parody is going to be less effective. Yeah, that makes total sense. And maybe that's that maybe that's exactly what the problem is. You know, if we're if we're looking at things through kind of a broader lens, what are the kind of movies that people have been making in the last 20, 20 years? I mean, there's largely like nothing that's original content anymore. It's all recycled, repurposed comic book movies mm-hmm. yeah. and stuff like that. Well, they did try to do a spoof. Somebody tried to do a spoof of comic book movies and it was called superhero movie which was kind of funny but it it fell in the same category as disaster movie epic movie and all these other ones that were really not that funny there was one oh okay there was one that was i thought was pretty funny it's called vampires suck which was a spoof of the twilight series that one i thought was was great but most of them lately have been really bad. And you know, you know going back to 
to the idea of of something being a parody of a superhero movie, there was Mystery Men with Ben Stiller. Did you remember that? Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty good movie, but the main problem with it is I think it was a little bit too early for its time. You know, there really... Ha- I mean, this came out in 1999, and there really weren't a lot of superhero movies made up to that point. I mean, really, we had the Christopher Reeve Superman movies in the late 70s and 80s. Then we had the Batman movies in the 90s. And by the time we got to 1999, I mean, we'd already seen, you know, like all of the cheesy Batman movies that had sort of become a parody of Mm -hmm. itself. And so by the time Mystery Men came out, like, I just don't think people really got it. You know, like... People didn't understand it. didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And so I think if that movie would have waited 20 years, it, it that could have actually been a better film after, you know, seeing just the, the last decade plus of Marvel and DC movies that we've just been sort of inundated yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody could make a good spoof of those, it might be a big hit, but they'd probably run into a lot of uh, licensing issues. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Did I did I hear that Mel Brooks is coming out with a new movie? He is, and I was just going to bring that up. So in 1981, he made History of the World Part One, which was which was another one of these kind of spoof movies, and it was pretty funny. And I remember when I I rented that uh, in like the early 90s. I remember asking my stepdad, "So where's Part two? Well, right. there was no part two, but I just learned that Mel Brooks is going to start filming part two uh, this year. Well, that will be interesting. Yeah, I haven't seen History of the World Part One in many years. It, it it's probably it probably goes back to the late 90s or something for me. And that was never one of his best movies, but it was funny. And I think that the thing that that a lot of people didn't like about that movie that's probably similar to why people don't like Kentucky Fried Movie is that the whole movie is sort of told in segments, you know, and it's broken up, it's disjointed. And while the same style of humor permeates through the whole movie, it's just, I don't know, it's just too broken up. And so some of those segments are really funny and then some of them aren't. And then you know, it's just when you when you make a movie like that, you're taking a big risk because, I mean, I don't know. You just can't you, you can't make every segment funny. It's just like, you know, going back to Saturday Night Live or some type of sketch comedy show. You just can't make every yeah. sketch mm-hmm. funny. Right. There's going to be, you know, half maybe that just aren't funny, you know, maybe even more. Yeah. No, but that is crazy that Mel Brooks is still still around. He's like a hundred years old, yeah, and um, st- still planning on making another movie. That's that's fantastic. That makes me very yeah. happy. It'll be interesting, interesting to see if he can make it funny. Like if he still understands what is funny now. Um, when I was just thinking about this movie, two of the things that I thought were funny. Well, first of all, this is the movie that invented the line. Um, it's good to be the king. Yeah. And when you right. when you see the movie, you'll find out yeah. why. But also, I thought the uh, he turned the Spanish Inquisition into this this big Broadway musical with like synchronized swimming and all that stuff. And I, I don't know. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, Mel Brooks kind of invented like making musicals out of like 
ridiculous stuff. I mean, wasn't that what the whole premise of that movie, The Producers? It's um, It's been a while since I've seen that, but have you ever seen that movie? No. <laughs> so it, it eventually became a, a Broadway musical with Matthew Broderick, but the, the premise of the movie is that this uh, this playwright director guy is kind of like in a really terrible situation financially and he's been cheating on his books. And so Gene Wilder comes in, who's like the accountant and looks at his books and tells him that he's totally fucked. But if there's a way that they can write the uh, like a musical, a Broadway musical or a show that will actually fail and they lose money at the box office, then it could be a huge write-off and they could actually just save his ass. And so that's kind of the premise is they want to make this this musical that will actually fail. And so they, they want to make something so offensive that people won't even come. And so they make this musical called Springtime for Hitler. And it's... It's so ridiculous, but people actually come and they love it. And so it actually ruins him because it's it's so successful. So, But that goes back to what I was saying, that Mel Brooks has a long history with musicals and musical comedy. And I think that the last good thing that he actually did was Robin Hood, Men in Tights, which did have some musical elements to it as well. But uh, that was kind of the end of the era for, for Mel Brooks, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what... He did after that. I mean, besides the producer's movie, which I I understand was, I mean, the, the new one, which was kind of a flop. Yeah, I didn't I didn't see the remake. I mean, I know the the Broadway show was a big hit, but then the movie came out and it it just bombed. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the uh, you can't really beat Mel Brooks, but again, I think that you know, as we're talking through this, he was just. Sort of at an interesting time and place in his career of the, from like the late 60s to the early 90s was kind of like, I think, the golden age for for parody and spoof films. I just think that that's kind of how it, how it was. And, you know, maybe things will change in the future. But right now, I mean, we've got a lot of good movies that we can go back and revisit and, and watch. But that sort of brings me to another topic here, which is... Getting back to Kentucky Fried Movie, there's a lot of things or there's a lot of elements in this movie that I don't think that you could get away with anymore. You know, like just the way that women are portrayed, for one thing, Uh, not to say that we don't show naked bodies and breasts and sex and things like that on TV, because there's probably more of that than any time in history right now on television and in movies. But just the way that women are portrayed is kind of cringe at certain at certain points. Like, and so the Catholic high school girls in trouble segment, okay, it's specifically parodying uh, sex exploitation films, so it's making fun of them. But at the same time, I don't think that people would appreciate that, you know, because it's just sexploitation films aren't a thing anymore. And so if you say, hey, we're making this parody of sexploitation films, people are like, what the fuck are you even talking about? The, there hasn't been one made since like 1977, you know? And so 
it's it, I think it would be hard to get away with that kind of comedy. Even some of the comedies, uh, some of the other comedies that that you see in the 80s. And we talk about this a lot, but it's very rare that like you see an 80s comedy, especially like in the early 80s, that doesn't show breasts. It's just like whatever it is, let's let's throw some breasts in there. That will add a little flair to it. <laughs> well, that was like the uh, basically the entire plot of every movie of the first half of the 80s was like uh, yeah, I was getting laid. Yeah, or, like, or how do we get laid? Or like high school guys trying to see girls in the locker room or something. You know, that was right. the, that was like the, the entire plot. It was some kind of cringe-worthy sexual exploitation slash assault, and it was funny. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I don't think that this movie could be made today. There's just too many of those elements in it that people are just going to be like, "Whoa, you can't you can't be doing this? We can't be we can't be doing this stuff anymore." But um, it is definitely an element of its time, right? Right. But yeah, then then it was. Uh you know, everybody thought it was super funny. Now, now, uh, well, you got to be careful. Yeah, this this movie this movie give will give people an interesting look into uh, what is acceptable in overall society or what was acceptable in the seventies. Because I think basically none of it is acceptable right. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could not exist anymore if this is the way that you were. Yeah. This. Yeah. This movie would not come out uh now any of it so i guess we can we can just segue into the uh the art or trash segment so the uh when we do see these elements of gratuitous sex or violence uh, would you say that it's that's art or trash that we're seeing on screen oh it's definitely it's it's well i'd have to say it's art made of trash i mean you know they they took uh a bunch of things that that you can't, you know, you can't really make a full movie like you said with just a bunch of like two or three minute skits. But somehow they did that with this movie and it worked. And for anybody that watches this movie, uh, you know, you have to remember that everything was all the people at the time believed in different things that that would now be considered primitive and uh it's funny as long as you remember sure. that. Yeah, you just can't take it seriously at all. And just remember that, hey, you know, not not that that's any kind of excuse, but things were different in, in the 70s. And you can get away with things that were more edgy and more exploitative and so forth. You, you could just get away with a little bit more during that time. And I think that that started to slow down in the eighties. The, the, the 70s were kind of like the wild, wild West in terms of like Hollywood cinema. And, you know, you go outside of, of comedies and look at anything else. That's, that's a mainstream Hollywood film of the 1970s. And it's very different era from the 1960s or anything that came after it. It's just a very, unique period in, in time. And so it's good to be able to see some of these comedies from that era because there's a lot of like really like dramatic films from that period from, you know, people like uh, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and directors like that that were that were very dramatic directors. And so it's good to see kind of like the opposite end of that come out of this era as well because 
Um, again, with movies like this, these parody spoof films, they in a lot of ways are some of the funniest thing that you'll ever see. You know? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, the whole thought of some of these things existing uh, in today's society kind of make it more funny too, because you just know it would never happen, even on the even on the channels like that show it all and uh, you know that that claim to be you know not afraid to show anything. I guarantee they could not make new stuff that has some of these concepts uh, in it. So uh, it, it's, it's they definitely pushed the envelope of uh, what is acceptable and what's not back then. And uh, I don't see them doing too much of that mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And and in terms of like just getting this movie produced, that was that was even somewhat of a problem back then because they knew that some of the segments that they were doing and some of the material that they were trying to film was going to rub people the wrong way. And so a lot of the things that they filmed first was all of the all of the things that seemed to be a little bit more tame. So they got through all of the stuff that was just a little bit easier to film and um, things that they wouldn't have so much of a problem with. And a lot of the the uh, the raunchier stuff that you see in the film was filmed later. And if you look at the end credits, it kind of shows an order of the of the film sketches that's not the same as what you actually see in the film. And the reason for that is they, you know, and they had this written out on the, on the way that they were going to um, film and present this on one hand, and then they just mixed it up, but they didn't actually go back and redo the end credits. So it doesn't make any sense when you look at the credits compared to the order that you see in the film. So yeah, it was it was a it was a difficult film to get made to begin with, not just because of the content, but because of nobody had really seen a movie like this made before up to this point. Like, you know, investors in Hollywood studios did not want to bankroll a film of sketches. They just didn't think it was going to be successful. And so they basically put together some of their own money and filmed a 10 minute short and used that as kind of a way to show investors or potential investors what the movie was about. And that's how they finally were able to get the financing that they needed. And then also this is how they attached John Landis to direct it. And that's essentially how the movie got made. Yeah. I was just reading that, um, the Zuckers and Jim Abraham's, uh, went around and, and pitched this movie to a bunch of people. And of course, they were they were immediately told no. And uh, a wealthy real estate investor offered to finance the film if they would write a script. Um, after completion of the screenplay, the investor had second thoughts and decided he didn't want to finance it alone. Um, so he said he would try to uh, get other people to invest in it. and uh, But he wanted to see a 10-minute uh, demo of the film and they made one and then the guy backed out and so just like you said they they paid for their own uh 10 minute film and uh whoever they presented it to uh died laughing when they saw it and then uh, they got got the rest of the financing so okay so we know the movie got made obviously it was a really low budget film i think somewhere around six hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make this do you know how how it did at the box office and how was it how was it reviewed by critics? 
So, so box office, uh, it says $7.1 million, but the, I, I think that also includes rentals. I think it like rentals, rentals is basically like the film print that gets sent out to the theaters. Oh, I see. Okay. So $7.1 million on a $650,000. Okay. Budget. So that's really good, you know, for, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot better than black Adam did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor black Adam. I don't even know what to say about that, but yeah, let's not talk about it. I'm too depressed. Maybe we'll discuss <laughs> it on another day. the The rock was 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 butthurt. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> My condolences. So, okay, so Kentucky Fried Movie was more successful than Black Adam. It's seven point one million dollars, including rentals. Uh, that's pretty good on such a small budget. And as we mentioned, this was. This was a big enough deal to launch the career of all the guys that made this movie. How how did the critics view this? You know, uh, did Roger Ebert like huh. it? Um, well, you'll have to tell me that. I just know that uh, Rotten Tomatoes has a score of eighty one percent. Metacritic gives it sixty one percent. But I'd say that's not bad considering uh, the budget and the fact that probably nobody else has seen this movie <laughs> yeah and this is another one of those things where we have to mention that the rotten tomatoes is hard to quantify because we don't know what the mix is between contemporary reviewers which are the reviewers you know of our era or our generation versus the contemporaneous reviews which are the reviews that came out when the movie was launched. So we can look up individual reviews from that time. I don't actually think Roger Ebert wrote a review on this film, even though he was quite pro prolific as a film critic at this time. Um, for whatever reason, he, uh, I don't, I don't think that he ever wrote a review on this movie. It does say Gene Siskel did. He gave it two stars out of four. Yeah, that's not very good. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, Gene Siskel was kind of known for his brutal movie reviews you know Siskel and Ebert kind of worked together for many years and a lot of times they didn't agree and I think it was just kind of like their approach to to reviewing movies like Roger Ebert is kind of uh I want to say for myself kind of like the gold standard of of film critics and the reason for that is he doesn't he's not going to review Kentucky Fried movie compared to like a masterpiece like Citizen Kane, you know, and say, well, obviously Kentucky Fried Movie is a total piece of <laughs> shit compared to Citizen Kane. He's going to compare it. He's going to re review it based on what it is and who the audience is. Right. And he's going to base a movie on its on whether or not the director and the filmmakers succeeded in that. Whereas Siskel would review that movie compared to all of the masterpieces out there. So to him, obviously, Kentucky Fried Movie isn't a great movie because we have Citizen Kane. That's the most amazing movie ever. How could we possibly talk about them in the same sentence, you know? And so, I don't know. Film criticism is, is interesting like that. You kind of have to read what these people are actually saying. And that's why, you know, we're compounding the difficulties of looking at a Rotten Tomatoes score you know, we're distilling it down to a number, which basically says that 83% of reviewers found it to be a good movie. But even 
beyond that, it's like I said, it's it's really difficult because we change our opinions on movies over the years as well. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, I always like to look at that number. That's why I asked you anyway to to look that up. But we do need to kind of throw that disclaimer out there that we don't actually know what the score would have been had Rotten Tomatoes existed in 1977. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So what's your final take on this, Adam? Uh, Tell us anything else that you want people to know about this and what do you like about it and what don't you like about it? Mm, I wouldn't say there's anything that I don't like about it. The only thing that I would tell people is I hope that if you have maybe seen a couple of the recent spoof movies and given up that this uh, inspires you to go see the rest of the earlier ones like Airplane 1 and 2 and uh, some of the Mel Brooks stuff and uh, even some the earlier scary movies and the Leslie Nielsen movies and all those kinds of things because they really are funny even if the recent ones were not. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that I kind of found this movie by accident one day because uh, I, I had no idea that uh, funny spoof movies went back this far. I, I, I actually had thought that Airplane was the first one. So glad to learn about this one. And uh, I thought it was really good. I generally agree with what you're saying. Uh, and I would say that a lot of people have seen Airplane and Naked Gun and some of the other spoof movies out there by these same filmmakers and like you did not know that this even existed. And so that's kind of the great thing about streaming is every once in a while, a movie shows up that you either forgot about, or you didn't know that it existed. And that, that is this movie. And the great thing is, is right now you can go watch this on Amazon prime for free. So you don't have to buy this. If you do want to buy it, you know, it's on all of the, the typical, uh, platforms like Apple TV, Google Play, etc. And you can also buy it on Blu-ray, but you don't need to. You can go watch it for free right now. So you have zero excuse as to why you're not watching this movie right now. What do you think about that? Exactly. Push stop and watch this movie right now because you you have Amazon Prime. And if you don't, well, I don't know why you don't. Yeah. And if you are offended by anything in this movie... Tell us, tell us what it is that you think is so offensive about this movie and why you think that it should or should not be made in 2023. But hopefully it does offend you because those are the things that start the conversations going. Exactly. Being offended is, uh, is, uh, it makes things more interesting. Okay. So that's it for this week. Uh, Adam, do you have any ideas of, uh, what your pick is going to be next time? Oh yeah, I, I got an idea. So, so we we were funny this time. Next week, next time is not going to be fun okay. at all. At all? Nope. You're gonna be traumatized. Are you sure about that? Oh, I guarantee it. The the people who have not seen the next uh, movie we're gonna talk about, when they do see it, they will be traumatized for life, which is why we're here. Okay. Well. We'll all look forward to that. Yeah. So thanks again, Adam, for doing this podcast this week. And we'll talk to you.